Well, I trust each of you men has had a good night of rest, and for those of you who uh, may be viewing these lectures at some other time than early in the morning, I trust you had a good night of rest as well. Well, the weighty subject of this second unit in this particular course of pastoral theology is that of the life of the man of God in the pastoral office. In the previous lectures in this unit, our study, we have focused all of our attention on the first major subdivision, namely the man of God in relationship to his God spiritually, intellectually, physically, and emotionally. In this hour, we begin to take in hand the second major subdivision of the man of God in relationship to his people, a relationship in which we shall consider the man of God as one characterized by three dominant realities. First, an increasing measure of unfeigned love for his people, Secondly, an increasing measure of deliverance from a carnal fear of his people. And thirdly, an increasing measure of the earned respect and confidence from his people. As we begin, let's ask God to come by his grace and power and to help us as we enter into this new division of our study together. Let us seek God's face in prayer. Our Father, how we thank you that we find not one word in your word to discourage us from coming again and again and again, seeking your face in the consciousness of our helplessness and our need. We find much that condemns us when we do not seek you, or when we seek you with a mere formal exercise of the lips, while our hearts are far from you. So, our Father, we come praising you for the grace that has preserved and brought us to this hour, thanking you for the privilege of gathering in this way to wrestle with these weighty matters concerning what we ought to be as men of God in relationship to those whom you have given to us to shepherd and to care for as under-shepherds in your church. So we come pleading for the help of your Holy Spirit, and may that help be given in due proportion to your servant as he seeks to address these subjects and to these men gathered here to be instructed out of your word. Come to us, we pray, that at the conclusion of this hour, we may with unfeigned gratitude bow and praise you that once again you have heard our cry, that we've not been left at the mercy of our own pathetic ignorance and spiritual impotence and dullness. Come to us, then we plead, believing that all that we need for this hour has been purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we are bold to ask that you would grant it to us in his worthy name. Amen. 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 Now it's my purpose 
in this hour to cover the first of these three aspects of the relationship of the man of God to his people. And we'll follow the method I have with the previous concerns. I will state and explain a simple axiom or principle, and then secondly, demonstrate the crucial importance of the axiom in relationship to our pastoral ministry, and then thirdly, seek to present some practical suggestions regarding the nurture and the practice and manifestation of a pastor's love for his people. First of all, then, we begin with a statement and explanation of what is a relatively simple axiom, and it is this. With respect to the relationship of a man of God to his people in the pastoral office, nothing is more vital than that which I've sought to capture in these words. You and I must experience a growing measure of unfeigned love for our people. Now let me seek to unpack that axiom. Central to the axiom and its concern is the word love. Now while there are few words more familiar to us, few things are more elusive and difficult to define with any degree of precision. However, since the issue is so vital, let's at least make an attempt at a definition of love, say something about the quality of that love, the measure of that love, and the objects of that love, as I've tried to capture those strands of thought in that simple axiom, you must experience a growing measure of unfeigned love for your people. When we turn to the scriptures, it's clear that love is much better understood in its working and manifestation than in terms of precise definition. When seeking to grapple with this whole question, what is the love commended to us, we must be careful that we don't try to make the answer to that question fit into philological or philosophical categories. 1 Corinthians 13 is the classic example of this fact. Love is set before us as the crowning Christian grace, not in a formal definition, but in terms of what it does and what it does not do. It does not come before us in terms of what it does and does not feel, but rather in terms of what it does and does not do. So it is with God's love. John says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or 1 John 3.16, Hereby know we love. How do we know what love is? Because he laid down his life for us. And we, in that same motivation of love, ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. However, for our purposes, I'm going to attempt a working definition, or probably better, a working description of love in this way. It is that gracious, 
and principal disposition of goodwill which desires and practically seeks the good of its object at personal cost. First of all, it is a gracious disposition. And by the use of that word, I mean it is the fruit of God's grace. Whether common grace or, in the case of the pastor, the activity of special grace. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And it is that grace that is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit that enables us truly to love. But then I've used the word principled. It is that gracious and principled disposition. In other words, it operates not by whims and impulses, but by fixed perspectives and commitments of the soul. Underneath true love in the heart of a man of God for his people is the pressure of the very law of God which commands us to love one's neighbor as oneself. And then I've used the word disposition. A disposition is the normal or the prevailing aspect of one's nature. We say of an individual, he has a very cheerful disposition. And what do we mean? We mean that cheerfulness is the prevailing climate of the man's demeanor and the way he carries himself and communicates with others. We say of another, he has a rather serious or gloomy disposition. We use the word in terms of the prevailing aspect of one's nature. Now this disposition of love that is the fruit of the Spirit that operates by divine principle undergirded by the pressure of the law of God, this love may or may not grow into deep affection. Affection always has a spontaneous affinity for its object. And this principled, gracious disposition may not ever, with respect to some people, grow into deep affection. It may never grow into what the old writers called a love of complacency. That is, a love that delights in its object. However, though it may struggle to be active toward this or that sheep, in the heart of the man of God, it is imperative that by the grace of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, we have a growing love for our people, a love that is a gracious, principled disposition. And then I have used the term that desires and seeks the good of its objects. It is the opposite of selfishness. That's why Paul can say, love seeks not its own, or in the language of Romans 13, 10, love works no ill to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love seeks the good of its objects, good as defined by God, not by the subjective understanding of man. And love is prepared to do this 
at personal cost. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Ephesians 5.25 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then John is bold enough to say that as we know the love of God in the laying down of his life for us and we ought We are under solemn obligation, under the pressure of that love, to lay down our lives for our brethren. So while I'm not prepared to say this is the most accurate, the most fulsome, the most precise definition of love, I do believe it's I'm safe to say it at least reflects some of the leading lines of the biblical doctrine of love. So when I say, that we must have a growing love for our people. I'm speaking of love as that gracious and principled disposition of goodwill which both desires and practically seeks the good of its objects even at personal cost. But now I want to say a word about the quality of this love and according to the scriptures the key word that describes its quality is unfeigned, anupokritos in the Greek. In 1 Peter 1.22, we are informed by Peter that one of the fruits of regenerating grace is unfeigned love. 1 Peter 1.22, seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren, love one another from the heart fervently. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, the apostle speaks of his experience of unfeigned love. And then again in Romans chapter 12, where the apostle is giving that litany of the duties of believers one toward another at the head of the list in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. So the quality of that love, it is to be genuine. In other words, we are not merely to put on the show of this principled disposition. Rather, we are to experience it in our hearts and to manifest it in our lives so that what men see is in reality what is. You remember that touching example of this in the life of our Lord. He goes to the graveside of Lazarus. Though he knows in a few minutes he's going to raise him from the dead, as he sees what death has done in shattering that home, in bringing such grief and pain to Mary and to Martha, he enters in empathetically. And the scripture tells us in that well-known verse, John eight thirty six, Jesus wept. And the response is the Jews looking upon this scene, seeing his tears and seeing his grief. They said, behold, how he loved him. This was unfeigned love. The tears were wrung out of a heart of genuine love for Lazarus, for Mary, for Martha. 
So the quality of our love as pastors, it must be unfeigned love. And then I want to say a word about the measure of this love. I have used the word we must experience a growing love for our people. And here the key text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here the apostle writing to this relatively infant church says, Concerning love of the brethren, you have no need that one write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. When they are regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is an internal spontaneous, God-wrought disposition of love planted in the soul. And he says, from that standpoint, I don't need uh, to uh, teach you and to exhort you, for you're taught of God to love one another. For indeed, you do it to all the brethren that are in all Macedonia. But we exhort you, brethren, that you abound more and more. And so when I speak of this growing measure, I'm simply trying to capture what is here in this text. And then in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, we have an example of this kind of love exercised in a pastoral setting that was far from an ideal or easy setting. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, And I will most gladly spend and be spent out, the intensified form of that verb, not only spend, but be spent out for your souls, if I love you more abundantly, am I loved the less. Paul can speak not only of loving them, but loving them more abundantly. And it's that dimension and strand of biblical truth that I'm trying to capture in my axiom when I speak of the growing measure of our love. And then the objects, I have used the term your people. And by these words, I mean primarily those who are officially and formally members of the church, as with our Lord. John 13, 1. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Those that were attached to him by formal profession and attachment. He had this unique and special love for his own. And when we read the charges given to pastors in Acts 20, 28 and Hebrews 13, 17 and in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, the assumption in all of those charges is that shepherds recognize who their sheep are. And so when I speak of having this growing measure of unfeigned love for our people, I'm thinking primarily of those whom God gives us as under-shepherds to care for as sheep in his flock. But also, also, I'm also thinking of those children of church members, visitors who sovereignly come within the orbit of our one-to-one contact and interaction. 
adherents who are attaching themselves to some degree of regularity to the ministry and to the life of our assemblies. And then, of course, reaching out beyond that to all men in general. None of us will rise to the measure of love that Paul expresses in Romans 9, 1 to 5, where he speaks of his passionate love for his fellow Jews who are yet in blindness. And then this same apostle can say in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake. And he does not know who they are. So he's enduring all things for all kinds of men, knowing that through his loving, sacrificial labors, God will call out and into saving relationship to his Son, those upon whom he has set his love from all eternity. In summary then, this is the axiom which embodies what you and I must experience as men of God among our people. You must experience a growing measure of unfeigned love for your people. That's the axiom and a measure of explanation and exegesis of it. Now we come secondly to a demonstration of its importance in the work of the ministry. Why? Why is it important that you and I experience this growing measure of God-like love for our people? Well, the biblical material in answer to that question is so vast that it's unwieldy. But let me give you five lines of thought that I trust will persuade you with increasing conviction that if you're to be the man of God, God wants you to be as you labor among your people. You must be able to say, by the grace of God, I have a growing measure of unfeigned love for them. Number one, because of the explicit teaching of 1 Corinthians and chapter 13. You remember the context is in the midst of Paul's treatment of spiritual gifts and nestled in the middle of his treatment, identifying some of those gifts, the giver of them, the sovereignty of God in the disposition of that giving, how they are to function in the coordinated life of the body of Christ. And then in chapter 14, of course, very specific directives, especially concerning prophecy and tongues. But nestled in the midst of that lengthy treatment of spiritual gifts, Paul wants us to know all of these gifts without the grace of love, moving the gifted one in the exercise of those gifts are futile. That's the context. The great end of all of those gifts is edification, the building up of others. And so the apostle begins with those well-known words, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I make a noise, but I make no sweet, mellifluous spiritual music on the ear of the hearers. 
my speaking irritates and drives away instead of consoles and comforts and draws in all of my orthodoxy and form of sound words. My skill in speaking will be but an orchestration in futility without love. That's Paul's introduction to the whole subject. If I speak with tongues and men and angels, but have not love, I'm the noisy gong and the clanging cymbal. And we need to constantly load our consciences with this fact as we enter the platform and ascend to the pulpit. Tell ourselves, if my heart is not experiencing by the operation of the Spirit a growing love to these to whom I minister, I will be to them noisy gong and clanging cymbal. So, the explicit teaching of 1 Corinthians 13 does indeed underscore the necessity of this growing measure of love. But secondly, the general demand for evangelical law-keeping. Although there are peculiar duties and responsibilities laid upon us in our office, none of the generic duties of a Christian man are suspended with respect to us. That simple principle has been a great help to me over the years. When I have been tempted to trade off a generic Christian duty because of the pressures of a specific pastoral duty, God has yanked me by the back of the neck in the seat of the pants again and again. My son, I did not put you in the ministry to negate what you're to do as a Christian man. Get hold of that principle if you haven't, brethren. It will save you from many a pitfall. And one of the generic Christian duties of all Christians is evangelical law-keeping. And when we turn to Romans chapter 13, we are told in no uncertain terms what that means. Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything save to love one another. For he that loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is Not the negation, but the fulfillment of the law. Insofar as I am loving my neighbor as myself and doing what love requires according to the standard of Scripture, I am fulfilling the law of God. Hence, whenever in the presence of my neighbor, this is my duty. How much more in the context when I am seeking to do my neighbor his highest good as one who is bringing him the word of the living God. So the importance of this matter of love in the work of the ministry is underscored because of the explicit teaching of 1 Corinthians 13, because of the general demand for evangelical law-keeping. Thirdly, because of the specific nature of our office. We are constituted the under shepherds of the chief shepherd. 
1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. And you have that play on words. And as surely as we are to shepherd only by the word of Christ, so we are always to manifest the spirit of Christ in the act of our shepherding. We are commanded, poimonete, shepherd the flock of God, but always remembering that one who is the archipoimenos, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, and he that says he abides in him ought himself so to walk, even as he walked. Now what is the dominant characteristic of the great shepherd in all of his dealings with his sheep? John 10 in verse 11 answers that question. What is the dominant characteristic of all of his dealings? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why? Because that's the ultimate expression of love. And he loves us. And he has validated all the professions of his love by making the the supreme expression of that love in laying down his life for us. John 15, 13 validates what I've just asserted. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So even when the Lord Jesus, as the shepherd and as the king of his people, as the ever-present prophet, priest, and king there in the vision of Revelation, when he speaks very castigating words to the church at Laodicea, he can say, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Revelation 3 and verse 19. Now, since our greatest influence is that exerted in the preaching of the word, Do you see how greatly we misrepresent the great shepherd if there is not a growing measure of unfeigned love for our people, a love that they can read in our demeanor, in our interaction with them in and out of the pulpit. I say, my brothers, we must have a growing measure of love for our people if we are to reflect the disposition of the great shepherd of the sheep. But then fourthly, we must have this growing measure of love because of the constituted relationship between assured love and an open ear. Now those words may sound a little strange, but let me explain them. If you would do good to your people, you must have their ears. You've got to get their ears. If you don't have their ears, you'll never get to their hearts. Now, if we're to have the ears of our people, they must have confidence that we love them. If confidence that we love them is at all shaken or not established, they withdraw their ears from us. Baxter hits the nail right on the head with respect to this principle when he wrote on page 117 of his Reformed Pastor. The whole of our ministry must be carried on 
in tender love to our people. We must let them see that nothing pleases us but what profits them, and that what does them good does us good, and that nothing troubles us more than their hurt. We must feel toward our people as a father toward his children. Yea, the tenderest love of a mother must not surpass ours. We must even travail in birth till Christ be formed in them. That's a reference from Galatians 4.19. They should see that we care for no outward thing, neither wealth, nor liberty, nor honor, nor life in comparison of their salvation, but could even be content with Moses to have our names blotted out of the book of life, to be removed from the number of the living, rather than they should not be found in the Lamb's book of life. Thus should we, as John says, be ready to lay down our lives for the brethren, and with Paul not count our lives dear to us, so we may finish our course with joy and the ministry we have received of the Lord Jesus. Now here's the key sentence. When the people see that you unfeignedly love them, they will hear anything and bear anything from you. A few sentences down, most men judge of the council as they judge of the affection of him who gives it, at least so far as to give it a fair hearing. Oh, therefore, see that you feel a tender love to your people in your breast and let them perceive it in your speeches and see it in your conduct. Let them see that you spend and are spent for their sake and that all you do is for them and not for any private ends of your own. And then again from Bridges, Page 336, at the bottom of the page, we're not arguing for that sensitive delicacy which refrains to wound when the patient shrinks, but we know not why the most energetic tone of faithfulness should not be blended with the considerate treatment with unquestionable is best adopted to the exigency of the case. The brute creation may be driven but rational creatures require to be drawn. The compulsion of love is the mighty lever or lever for our British friends of operation. Even the heathen sophist insisted upon kindness in an orator as, an indisp- as indispensable to his success, and doubtless none will open their hearts to the Christian orator except the tone of his instructions has impressed them with a sincere conviction of his love to their best interest. Love is the life, power, and spirit of pulpit eloquence, entreating rather than denouncing the character of our office, and it is the delivery of our master's message with the looks and language of his own manifested tenderness that attracts and triumphs over the hearts of a willing people. And then there is a lovely quote that I want to just read, a brief one from Calvin's commentary in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. 
where Paul can say, God is my witness, how I yearn after you. He now declares more explicitly his love for them and to prove it, uses an oath and that on good grounds because we know how dear in the sight of God is the edification of his church. It was too of the first importance that Paul's love should be thoroughly made known to the Philippians for it will in no small degree win credit for the teaching when the people are persuaded that they are loved by the teacher. I had a classic example of that just before coming into this lecture this morning. I took out the rod and I wounded a brother severely yesterday when I spoke of excessive weight. He came to me this morning, looked me straight in the eye and expressed his appreciation and his affection because he knows I love him. He has no question that I love him and I want his highest usefulness for the longest period of time so that if God gives me the benefit of a conscious deathbed and I review in that time the men that have become dear to me, I can think of this brother in the blessing of God carrying on his labors with greater physical vigor, a greater grip upon the conscience of his people because by the grace of God he's won the battle of his belly, to put it bluntly. But when people know you love them, it is amazing what they will receive from you. There is a constituted relationship between assured love and the open ear. It's recorded that on one occasion a man who was in the Salvation Army came to General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, working among the outcasts in the various cities of London and he poured out his heart to the general and said, General Booth, I've tried this, I've tried that, and I can't break through to these people. And General Booth's counsel was simple. He said, my brother, try tears. Try tears. And he was not so much emphasizing literal tears, but make it known to these people you love them. And you can't make known what is not. It must be unfeigned love, the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. But then my fifth line of evidence of the tremendous importance is because of the specific ways in which love will influence your preaching, both in its preparation and in its delivery. Let me illustrate. Is effective preaching marked by its fidelity to the text of Scripture? By conviction that only the truth of God is wholesome food, then, if so, it's love to your people. Love and its desire to do them good by an accurate handling of the truth that will drive you to the arduous task of exegesis that will cause you to press on by prayer and pains when the passage is dark and murky that comes in the next section of your consecutive exposition. What is it that will keep you from, from winging it or keep you from trying to bluff it? It's love for your people. I love them enough to give them the wholesome food of truth 
And the truth is deposited in this passage. And for the life of me, it's Friday, it's Saturday, and I don't feel I've got a handle on it. What will keep you denying yourself, pressing on? Is it not love to your people? Yes, love to God and love to truth, but not these things in abstraction. The Lord's day is breathing down your neck and Christ's sheep bought with his blood, need to be fed in the wholesome, rich pastures of an accurate exposition of the word. It is love that will operate in your heart in the lonely place of the study. Is effective preaching marked by its logical and transparent structure? Then it is love to your people that will make you labor to pursue clarity of structure in your preaching, when for the life of you, having known the help of God by the use of all the legitimate means to penetrate the mind of God in the passage, then you say, yes, Lord, but it's this amorphous glob, and I can't just gather it all up and plop it on the people. There's got to be some logical structure, some clarity of structure. They can see the head from the tail and what's in between. And there are times when you just can't seem to to get it broken down. What is it that will drive you to stay there at the desk and cry to God and labor until you can leave the study confident that there is reasonable clarity and transparency in the structure? Is it not love? to your people? And if effective preaching is marked by its searching element, seeking to rivet the word to the conscience of the hearer, what is it but this love that will keep you over the passage when it does not yield quickly its practical application to the conscience, and yet you are confident that there is not only a road from that passage to Christ and his saving work, but there is a road into the conscience, the moral awareness of your people, so that having opened up the what of the passage, you don't leave them wondering, so what? Your application answers the question, so what? And it's love that will keep you at the desk. Then it is love that will move you to labor in the act of preaching in the language of Baxter. And I love the terminology. To seek to screw the word into their conscience by close and lively application. And I think of those times when I've been seeking to put a screw into a piece of oak, and I didn't have a drill to make a pilot hole. And I can remember times when I've broken the screw off. It's tough business, screwing a brass screw into a piece of oak without a pilot hole. You know what the pilot hole is. You take the drill, and and then you just leave a little place for the outside of the screw to take hold. Well, brethren, what is it that's going to keep us at that? Is effective preaching marked by its earnestness, by its pathos, in which you let that truth ride over every single wire of your own emotional constitution? And you say, Lord, if the fuses are going to blow, let them blow. Let them blow. You don't spare yourself. You're ready to be wrung out over your people. What is it but love? that causes you again and again to be willing to undergo this kind of partial self-immolation involved in preaching. 
Well, surely it is love to your people. And the good and great Dr. Lloyd-Jones makes this very, very searching confession. Page 92 of Preaching and Preachers. A special word must be given also, though in a sense we've been covering it, to the element of pathos. If I had to plead guilty of one thing more than any other, I would have to confess that this perhaps is what has been most lacking in my own ministry. This should arise partly from a love for the people. Richard Cecil, an Anglican preacher in London toward the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th, said something which should make us all think. To love to preach is one thing. To love those to whom we preach, quite another. The trouble with some of us is we love preaching, but we are not always careful to make sure that we love the people to whom we are actually preaching. If you lack this element of compassion for the people, you will also lack the pathos, which is a very vital element in all true preaching. Our Lord looked out upon the multitude and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, was filled with compassion. And if you know nothing of this, you should not be in a pulpit, for this is certain to come out in your preaching. We must not be purely intellectual or argumentative. This other element must be there. And then, of course, Spurgeon, who exemplified this so powerfully and consistently, over the whole of his ministry, writes on page 341 of his lectures to his students, the class requiring logical argument is small compared with the number of those who need to be pleaded with by way of emotional persuasion. Now you know Spurgeon well enough to know he does not mean emotion hung on a skyhook but emotion growing out of an opening up of the text of Scripture. They require not so much reasoning as heart argument, which is logic set on fire. And then he goes on to seek to persuade his students that they must know something of this operation of love in the midst of their preaching, if their preaching is to have the persuasion of the emotions. Well, my brothers, these are but some of the ways in which this grace of holy love will mightily influence your preaching and your other ministerial labors. Why, it is, why is it essential then to have this increasing measure of unfeigned love to your people? The explicit teaching of 1 Corinthians 13 the general demand for evangelical law-keeping, the specific nature of our offices under shepherds, the constituted relationship between assured love and an open ear, and then the specific ways in which love will exert its influence upon our preaching and upon our other pastoral labors. Now then, let me very quickly, in seven minutes, so that I'll be done uh, before the hour, give you some practical suggestions for the nurture and the manifestation of this love towards your people. 
with respect to its nurture, cry to God for it. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Tell God, Lord, left to myself, I am a mass of lovelessness. Ask God to give it. You never need to say, if it be your will. How many things when we pray, we've wrestled with the principles and precepts and precedents of Scripture, and we say, Lord, it appears to me that if you gave me this, it would be right and for my good and for your glory. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When you cry to God for ever-increasing baptisms of love, the fruit of the Spirit, you never need to append your prayer with the words, if it be your will. It is His will that we abound more and more and we bring before God the expression of His will and His wonderful promise. How much more will He give the Spirit, whose fruit is love, to those who ask him, and then deliberately meditate upon the truths calculated to produce and stir up this love, the worth of the souls of our people. Consult Baxter, page 131, 132 at your leisure. The worth of the soul in itself, the sufferings and the agonies of Christ for sinners, The true state of men living under a canopy of his wrath if they are not his children. Those of his people exposed to temptations on the right hand and the left. Seek to load your mind with those perspectives that as you think upon them, the Spirit of God will use that reflection to rekindle love for your people. But then... Practical suggestions for its manifestation. Here I take the pattern of 1 John 3.18. Let us not love in word only, but also in deed and in truth. John says there's two ways to love, word and deed. He assumes that word loving is the easiest. Let us not love in word only. He assumes the people of God are not embarrassed to say I love you. I've been carrying on a one-man campaign for many, many years to get men over the hang-up of saying to one another, I love you. I'm not queer. (laughs) But I am, I hope, biblical. Read the epistles. Paul unashamedly declares his love for the people of God, his love to Timothy. He uses terms, dearly loved, Beloved, I'm affectionately desirous to see you. You have become very dear to us. There's nothing unmasculine about men saying, Brother, I love you in the bonds of Christ. And tell our people we love them. Paul did it. Our Lord did it. He told his disciples that he loved them unashamedly. Let us love in word, but let us love indeed in arduous labors to feed them well, in the affectionate touches of their children. I don't know where I first read it. It says, he who lays his hand on the head of a child lays his hand on the heart of his mother. It's true. When people see your affection manifested to their children, you've come by the back door into their own hearts. And some people who are trying to shut the front door of their hearts to you, sneak up on them by putting your hand on the head of their children. 
become the buddy and the friend of their children. When my friend Brian Borgman was getting materials for that little mini biography in preparation for his book, My Heart for Thy Cause, he interviewed one of our families. I married the parents, so the kids never knew any part of life without me being a part of it. And so he asked them, he said, now tell me, as you think back when you were a little kid and uh, you began to be aware that Pastor Martin was a pastor of your parents' church and, and you were brought up out of the nursery and began to sit. Were you ever intimidated when he stood up there and he roared and he thundered and he frowned and he pointed his finger? You know what they did? They laughed at him. They said, ha ha, intimidated by that man? No, he's been our friend. He'd been in our backyard and jumped in our pool with his clothes on. <laughs> and then they went on to tell him, Well, you see, as they come up into their mature years and they're struggling with all the things that are concomitant upon that development, when you have worked your way in by deeds and have a bond of love, you have a platform of influence that can be had in no other way. Love indeed. The children with your people. The little phone call about an inconsequential thing. A card a sympathy card, a letter when there's been something that indicates an important issue has come into their lives, just a few sentences, inquiries about this or that that is important to them so that like a stalactite and a stalagmite, you build up this tower of manifested love by word and by deed. And the more you do by the grace of God, you have their ears when you stand to preach. May God help us to grow in this unfeigned love to our people, both in the reality of it in our hearts and in the manifestation of it in both word and deed. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you that you are the great paradigm to us. You have loved us in word, Indeed, and we pray that more and more we may learn how as pastors to love our people in word and in deed. We confess that the measure of our love is so meager and we yearn to have more and more of that love that causes us to lay down our lives for them. Father, surely if the spirit of martyrdom throbs through genuine love, there is yet so much unmortified self-seeking in us. Nail it to your cross and deliver us by the power of your spirit. Seal these things to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.